You're listening to a Mornings with Kelly and Steve podcast. Be sure to check us out every weekday morning from 6 to 9 on Moody Radio. Dr. Glenn Dewar, he's the Professor of International Studies, uh, as well as the Chair of History and Government there. And we want to get an examination and an understanding of what is happening not only with the situation of the three service members uh, who were killed in uh, Yemen last week, but how the response of the U.S. is going to possibly impact the ongoing war that is continuing with Hamas and Israel. So good morning to you, Dr. Glenn. How are you? I'm doing well. Great to be with you, Steve, and praying for Kelly's Speedy recovery. Well, you know, I gave my cold to her, so it's the gift that I'll keep on giving. I'm sure she'll pass it on to someone next. <laughs> that time of year. Yes, it is. It absolutely is. Well, Dr. Dewar, it was very disconcerting last week, of course, when the news broke of the service members who were killed in those bombing attacks, uh, the drone attacks on uh, the U.S. bases. Now, I know they were far outpost They were um, in far reaches. They were fairly isolated locations, but strategic nonetheless. Um, First, how how do we understand who it was behind the bombings and how they were actually carried out that um, we have lost three service members uh, in Iran? Uh, Well, in Yemen from by Iran. If we if we zoom out a little bit, we have obviously Hamas's brazen and heinous attack on Israel on October the 7th, and we've seen uh, a full-scale war uh, out of that one. But linked and close to it, we have Hezbollah firing some rockets, roughly 2,000, into northern Israel. Uh, The Houthi rebels that have been redesignated as a terrorist organization have been active in the west of Yemen into the Red Sea against U.S. and allied targets. But this one in particular, where we've seen U.S. bases and U.S. troops and intelligence officers uh, on the ground in places like Iraq and Syria and Jordan, have also been attacked by Iran-backed militias uh, on 166 different occasions. And this one is a little stranger because this attack occurred on Tower 22, which is in Jordan, which has been uh, at peace with Israel since 1994 and really a stable ally in the Middle East. And it's also been our launch pad um, for U.S. troops to fight against ISIS in Iraq and Syria. So it's just really, really heartbreaking to have our troops killed uh, in this way in in Jordan, in a country that's typically been, been safe. But uh, this has been, uh, there are several pieces to this uh, war in uh, Israel against Hamas, and there's a real threat of escalation to something much, much wider. Well, when we think about these different organizations, you know, we, we can mention uh, Hezbollah, we can mention Hamas. There are several different organizations, uh, terrorist groups that are well-armed that can be causing these disruptions. And we, as the United States, are we've announced that we will respond to this uh, in what way. We haven't seen that. There has been no indication uh, as to when that may actually occur. But what is the possibility uh, of the boldness of other 
groups rising up now and saying, well, okay, well, they did it. They were successful. We can do it too. Would we then expect to see sort of a string of these types of attacks occurring? Because it has ratcheted up in the past four weeks, the attacks on U.S. soldiers. Yes, certainly there's every possibility because as noted, this is the 166th attack since October the 7th. They've been regular. Uh, this was the first one to claim lives, and so it's certainly different. But there are at least four different major terrorist groupings that are conducting attacks either on Israel or against U.S. and allied targets in that region. And that doesn't even get into civil wars in places like uh, Libya, uh, Sudan, Yemen, Syria, um, that that. Uh, also have significant violence. And so uh, it's it's a very difficult situation, and certainly the, the decisions are not easy. But at some point, um, you know, either there's a decision made to leave or to hit hard against uh, Iran in some way, because it has fully backed all of these militias and terrorist organizations with weaponry. Uh, it's clear that they're using uh, Iran-made missiles. Um, there's a long string of financial uh, connections to Iran as well, because none of these uh, terrorist groups are in wealthy areas. They're getting backing from the outside, uh, and namely Iran. So decisions have to be made in terms of how to respond, because since October the 7th, uh, there's been a real uptick in violence which is such a shame because the Abraham Accords were doing such great work in the Middle East to bring peace, um, and Saudi Arabia was thinking about joining, which would have really changed the dynamic in that region, but it has unfortunately gone backwards in very significant ways. And the other piece is that um, in the West Bank in Israel, uh, that had been really quite peaceful since 2005, not perfect by any means. There have been issues here and there, and there have been terrorist incidences. But in general, the peace had been building since 2005, and it was really unraveled since October. Well, as all of these groups now, uh, clearly there there's a massive agenda against the United States. There is a great agenda to really exploit what has happened between Hamas and Israel. And as you pointed, the Abraham Accords were were working, and then they were reversed. We also saw the release of money, you know, embargoed dollars to uh, Iran recently, somewhere on the order of, I believe, $80 billion in the past couple of years released to them, that clearly is, pot, well, I will say possibly, but I, wanna, I don't want to say clearly because we don't know, used against us by funding these attacks, funding these weapons, and funding these militant groups. So what are we to make of that as far as world stage, our foreign policy of America, and the position now that we may be weakened. It's certainly a difficult set of circumstances and very challenging decisions. Um, Republicans and Democrats are very divided on the joint comprehensive plan of action, the Iran deal uh, that uh, President Obama signed in 2015, then President Trump decertified in 2017 and then withdrew in 2018. President Biden has been has reinitiated those talks and has tried to move it forward. 
and as you noted, has also released significant monies, some $6 billion in frozen assets uh, that are in Iraq that will go to Iran, and then another $10 billion uh, that have been frozen in South Korea that will go to Iran as well. So as you noted, there's a massive amount of money that has been freed up to Iran. Some of that has been refrozen, but some of that has also been used uh, to fund militias. And so this is a very deeply challenging moment because Iran is, is playing both sides. They could certainly break out to a nuclear weapon in the not-too-distant future, mm. and they are heavily, heavily funding these militias. At the same time, Iran is probably pretty weak internally. We tend to look at it from the outside and think it, it's, it's a strong authoritarian regime, but there have been widespread protests in Iran uh, following the killing of Masa Amini, the 22-year-old young lady that was killed by the morality police for not wearing, allegedly, her hijab correctly. Yeah. And uh, there have been, along the periphery of Iran, all kinds of protests, and uh, there's a Sunni insurgent group that operates from Pakistan, and so uh, Iran doesn't want a wider war, but at the same time, it's doing an awful lot of funding to get rid of the United States and to hurt Israel within the Middle East. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that and the possibility of them being able to achieve a nuclear weapon. And that was kind of the the major concern. And part of the original Obama agreement with Iran was, you know, we would have access to be able to uh, look at their um, nuclear sites and, and be sure that they were not weaponizing those things. And then, of course, that was taken off of the table and then now back on. But those things didn't ever appear to really be happening. And so we know that right now there's been intelligence that's been gathered that they were training, Hamas was training for October 7, right out in open view. Uh, and, you know, this has been kind of linked to a story in the Wall Street Journal about how uh, they've given some detail around the agency of the um, U.S. and you, sorry about that, I keep going over it, UNRWA's staff to to Hamas. So what would make us think that these things wouldn't be happening in the open before our plane, you know, site, just as the training did for October 7th, and how do we how do we address that? How can we protect ourselves? Because they have been vocal about it, saying that you know a strike against the U.S. would be the next escalation point if we were to retaliate. These are very serious questions because um, Israeli intelligence, from Mossad to Shin Bet to Amman, uh, their, their various intelligence agencies saw what was happening with uh, Hamas inside of Gaza how they were training and preparing. And, you know, the Israeli government just didn't see it to be possible that they would infiltrate the border, something that really hasn't happened in such a scale since 1973. And so uh, Israel, unfortunately, was uh, asleep at the wheel to some extent on that. But it clearly shows that Hamas is still willing, uh, with Iran backing, to engage in such brutal violence. And as you linked it to the UN Relief Works Agency for Palestinians, this is a UN agency that is funded in part by the United States. We typically fund about 22% of the UN system, 
and 29% of all peacekeeping operations. So there's a lot of American taxpayer dollars that go to this. And the really brutal part of it, as you mentioned, is at least a dozen UNRWA uh, employees uh, were part of the raid and connected to uh, Hamas's just really terrible invasion of Israel. Um, if we take a step back, this is an organization that's exist, an agency that's existed since 1948. And weirdly, under the UN system, there are two agencies for refugees. One is the uh, UNHCR, the High Commission for Refugees, and the second one is specifically for Palestinians. But if we think about you know, funding this since 1948 and what has come of it, really all that it's done is entrench refugee status among the Palestinians in different areas and never really helped them to move forward. This is an agency that was set up for their grandparents and great-grandparents and just is still funded to this day and then has such a, a brutal, rotten core where people uh, have become, people from the outside world that are working for UNRWA have ended up uh, sympathizing with Hamas and then supporting them to the point of attacking and killing Israelis. And so, uh, I mean, I've long been in favor of cutting funding for UNRWA. If Palestinian refugees need help, it can be uh, put under the UNHCR umbrella, and I think a change is really necessary there. Well, we only have a couple more moments left, but I want to uh, gain an understanding and a perspective on Iran. Because, you know, we're, we're throw around the name and we say that, yes, their government is funding all of these things, but that is not necessarily how the people of Iran feel. Because many people don't realize or recognize and remember even before the Islamic Revolution what Iran was like. And then came this dictatorship and this fundamentalism that came over the, the uh, government and now there are many, many people who I'm sure oppose this. We've seen, you know, throngs of people uh, be murdered for their political, you know, uh, being outspoken. We have seen, as you pointed to, the morality police. And now after the murder of Masa Amani, well, does that culture still exist in the people of Iran versus the government? Because we see it. As well, pal not all Palestinians support Hamas, but there is a an oppressive government over them that is exploiting them. Is that the same picture that we see inside of Iran? And is that what our notion should be? You know, that there are people who are against Iran's actions internally. I'm glad you raised this question because it's so vitally important and not discussed enough. And Absolutely, there is a significant portion of the Iranian people that are opposed to their government. If we break Iran down and call it a, a like an oval-shaped country, and it's roughly reminiscent of that, 67%, so roughly two-thirds, are ethnic Persians that speak um, a Persian language and are ethnically Persian, and they are the most likely to support the regime. But along the periphery, there are a lot of religious minorities, uh, Sunni Muslims, and uh, ethnic minorities as well, uh, from Kurds to Arabs to Balochis to Turkmen to Azeris, that are typically opposed 
to the regime. And even within the Persian majority, within the kind of inner circle of the, of the Oval, there are significant changes taking place. One is that several missions organizations have reported that the gospel is moving very, very rapidly in Tehran, the capital city which is really quite remarkable to think of people following Christ in the midst of this. The second piece is that I personally have been interviewed on numerous occasions by Iranian media. I've been invited to engage uh, young people in Iran at universities to write a book chapter, things like that. And generally, I have found journalists that are willing to allow me to speak my mind, to say pro-American things, to talk about, to some degree, my Christian faith. Uh, I haven't been invited back recently, so maybe that's telling. Maybe there's been some level of clampdown, but it shows me, it gave me a window into Iran to some degree that there are people that are opposed to the regime, and the regime is actually probably quite weak to some extent. Mm -hmm. And we should really be fervently praying because the Holy Spirit is moving in places and there's a lot happening in Iran, a country of 80 million people where a lot of people just want a regular democratic life. They yeah. want the country to be normal. And that is one of the challenges because they're still faced with just such a brutal, repressive authoritarianism since 1979. Yeah. And even though before that there were some restrictions as far as you know political freedoms within the country, they still were really able to express themselves they had access to western culture they were you know doing all of the things and becoming a more free society regarding their culture although it wasn't maybe politically you know as free as they want that democratic uh you know society that they long for but that's another conversation and discussion because uh, we've bumped up on our time, but an important one nonetheless. We have to recognize these are people, too, made in the image of God. And when we start throwing around things about, you know, in, even going back, I remember it, you know, in the in the early 80s, you know, it was just bomb, bomb Iran, you know, that's what we need to do. These are people not every single one of them are part of this culture of repression. Not every one of them are ideologues that hold this position and these um, fundamentalist sort of Islamic views that we've got to recognize and pray that God's going to move in the midst of all of this. Uh, and we we know the end of the story, and we know he will win, but goodness gracious, there are a lot of people who are in harm's way, and we need to be praying for that. So... Dr. Dewar, I very much appreciate your insight and would love to have you back on so we can continue that conversation around Iran specifically. But I do want to encourage people, go to cedarville.edu, find out all you can about their programs as well. And you know what? Great professors, just like Dr. Glenn Dewar, who are there, man. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. My pleasure, and thanks for your questions and your, your nuanced view of the world. Greatly appreciate it. You're listening to Mornings with Kelly and Steve on Moody Radio, from the word to life.